In the Marines, uh, one of the most fundamental things that we were taught, one of the things that was established very early on, was regarding our organizational structures. In fact, military members know that the organizational structure is oftentimes referred to as the chain of command. It's the list of rankings that a person uh, aligns authorities and dominions. Quite simply, you guys know that the, the lower the rank is lower in authority, and the higher the rank, the higher in authority. So you might come in as a private, an E1, an enlisted first class, and rise in the ranks of the enlisted up into the sergeant major, their highest ranking uh, member in the enlisted class. There's even another class outside of that that's the officer class, the commissioned one. You start with the second lieutenant and ends up in the general groups. This is really critical for us to understand early on because everybody needed to know who is in charge. In fact, that was so critical for us to know who is in charge that it was drilled from the very first day to follow your leader. Now, we might, in our own personal lives, have a sense that respect is earned. In other words, if you don't, if you don't quite know a person, if you haven't quite developed time in relationship with them, you might not yet have respect for them. And even if that is true, if you can see ways in which that's true, it was made very clear to us from early on that you respect the rank even when you don't respect the individual. Now, of course, I'm talking in military terms, but I think you guys understand what I mean by that if, you're, if you've never been in the military, right? We have this in all other spheres of our lives. Think about, think about like the police officer who pulls you over for breaking the law. You broke the law. You blew the red light. You, you were going 20 over the speed limit, and he treats you like a jerk. He's, he's, he's acting wrong and stuff like that. You may not respect that guy at all, but he's the police officer in that place. We respect the, the rank, the office, the office that's been designed by God, even if the person filling the office is not one that we admire personally. This is why Christians have long prayed for our president and honored and given respect to our president, even when the person occupying that office is not so very respectable. You know that you might have to respect and honor your boss in your place of business simply because he or she is your boss even if you don't think that person is respectable. Even flight attendants and, and, and the 18-year-old the lifeguard at the pool are given a position of authority that even if they are not acting respectable, would respect the seat. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. Because if you were to read through Hebrews chapter 7, and if you were to go through verses 1 through 22, which is where we've been so far in our study through the book of Hebrews, uh, this chapter, you could think that all of the good that we get, good, get through Jesus and because of him as our high priest is due only to his office. In fact, it could. You, you, you might stumble into the error if you don't continue on and see the broader picture in Scripture and the next passages that are about to come. You could think, well, he's just the priesthood holder. So because he has this office, this Melchizedek priesthood office, that office is deserving of respect. He's in a position of authority that he can do certain things that we cannot do, and so we respect that office. And while certainly we ought to, it is not just the priesthood that is better but it is Jesus that's better. It's his very person that is higher. Everything about him, 
And when the New Testament authors talk about the value of Jesus, we do see value of of his office, of his sonship, eternal sonship before the Father as, as a member of the Trinity. We do see that. But the authors are quick to celebrate just how amazing and good and wonderful Jesus is. There are lots of religions that make a big deal about priesthood. Religions today that have priests. I'm thinking primarily what might come to mind is Mormonism because of where we live, or even Catholicism, for those of you who might have that in your background, where an idea of a priesthood and the class of priests is really critical. But what happens in those kinds of religions is the higher accolades you give to an office, typically the lower you give to the person and work of Jesus. Our text today warns us from that and establishes some really incredible things about him. I'm excited to preach on this for that reason. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to, we're going to preach through Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. That's all I'm going to get to. But I'm going to read 22 through 28. I'm just going to kind of go back up one verse, uh, what we covered last week, and then I'm going to go all the way through the end of the chapter. I'm going to pray, and then we'll just go through just those three verses today. That's all we're going to do. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can please read with me. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, I love your word. I love the book of Hebrews. I'm so grateful that this book is here, that teaches us the relationship between the Old Testament and the New so clearly that shows of the pictures of the whole Old Testament system designed to to bring peace between you and your sinful people and how that relates to the new covenant day that we are in right now. Lord, we thank you for the graciousness that you have dealt with us. We thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have established him forever as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Father, we seek to understand that more fully. And we ask for your help this morning in doing that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Verses 23 and 24 of this chapter Quick reminder to you about the priesthood. Under the Mosaic covenant, that's the, that's the time period under the days of Moses, the covenant God made with his people during Moses' time, there were priests and there were high priests, or more specifically, priests and a high priest. This is two separate classes of priest that we need to acknowledge and understand in order to see what's being talked about here. 
at any given time, there would be many priests. In fact, as the priesthood was established, uh, the Aaronic priesthood, the first group of priests, not high priests, but priests, there was four of them. That was the four sons of Aaron. While Aaron himself held the singular office of high priest. He was the only one at any given time, the high priest, that was given the particular duty of offering the sin sacrifice on behalf of the corporate people of Israel. It was that high priest alone, not all the others, who was permitted to enter behind the veil in what was called the Holy of Holies, the most sacred room of two in the tabernacle and later the temple. Only one guy once a year could do it, and it was only the high priest. It's clear that the author in Hebrews 7 is referring to the high priest when he's talking about priesthood. He's not just talking about priests generally. The office of high priest. And he'll continue to make that clear by using the term high priest interchangeably with priest. As you're looking at this and you're wondering what exactly is he talking about, he's not talking about just the individual priests that were under high priest. He's talking about the main guy. So quick question for you. In the Old Testament, Aaron was the first high priest. In fact, God established a high priesthood with Aaron. So why is Aaron not our priest today? And the answer given right here is the very obvious, simple, and clear one. Because he died. That's why he can't continue on as high priest. He died. In fact, it has been estimated that there were 84 high priests between Aaron's lifetime and A.D. 70. That was the year in which the Jerusalem... uh, Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans and the temple was destroyed. And and Judaism, as we knew it in the Old Testament, was gone. So between Aaron, 1440s BC, up until 70 AD, they estimate about 84 high priests throughout that given time. But never two at once. There was one guy, and when he died, passed it on to another guy. When he died, passed it on to another guy. It just went that way in succession, genealogical succession, in the exact line over the course of that period of time. But Jesus holds his priesthood, a higher, better Melchizedek priesthood, permanently. You see, that's the argument he's making here. Those high priests died. Jesus lives. So why does Jesus not pass the Melchizedek priesthood down to others? Quite simply, because he lives. He's still alive. He's holding it today. The job is taken. The position has been filled. For the record, once again, we see that the resurrection of Jesus is an utter necessity to the Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity. And I say that because there are people today who want to moralize Jesus and just go, well, he didn't do miracles. Of course, he didn't raise from the dead. But he taught us lots of good things. But if you have a Jesus who just taught you good things and died, you don't have Christianity. There is no priest but Jesus. I made that claim last week, that there's no priest but Jesus. We're not looking for anybody else to operate as a priest. Jesus alone is our priest. I made that case last week. And I was approached afterwards, and somebody asked a really great question. They said, well, well, how does that work, that statement, Jesus is the only priest, how does that work with what we know in the New Testament as the priesthood of all believers? Because doesn't the New Testament say that all believers today have a priesthood? The answer is absolutely yes. I'm going to give you one place. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 6 says this. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he has made us priests. All of us, believers in Jesus Christ, have been made priests. Christians have become the anointed, consecrated priests of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 will say something very similar, that we are a holy nation, a chosen race, priests. But there is a major difference between the priesthood of the Old Testament and the priesthood of all believers in the New, the kind that we hold today. Let me give you a few reasons. First, it is not based on genealogy. Our priesthood today, the, the, the Christian priesthood, not the Aaronic priesthood, not even the Melchizedek priesthood, the Christian priesthood, that's our order of priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus, is not based on genealogy. It's not based on being Jewish or Levite or even directly descended from Aaron, nor is it restricted to male descendants as it was in the Old Testament, where that priesthood was only held by men. Additionally, in the Old Testament, if a man was maimed in some way and had a physical blemish because of this maiming by birth or by some other act that happened later in his life, he could not hold the priesthood. Why? Because there was supposed to be symbolism in the purity and the blemish-free nature of the priests. While their hearts were certainly not blemish-free, we saw that last week, that was made clear, any outward symbol that would make him look like he had a blemish disqualified him for priesthood. And that doesn't stand for today. The priests of the Old Testament were set apart for God, but now all Christians have been set apart for God. Second reason why the Old Testament priesthood is different than the one we hold today. There are not just few select priests among Christians. There are passages in the New Testament that tell us of the distinct spiritual gifts that are given by God to certain individual Christians in order to build up and edify the church. You might remember some of the lists if you've ever read through these in the New Testament. Uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a short list. Uh, offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. There are a bunch of these lists in the New Testament. Do you know what you will not find in those lists? Priest. Because priesthood does not distinguish one Christian from the next, but we all hold it together. Third, third reason why the new priesthood in Jesus' name is distinct from the Old Testament priesthood is that in the Old Testament, people offered more than just sin sacrifices. Did you realize this? The high priest would offer a corporate sacrifice on behalf of the plurality of people, all the people, the multitude of Israelites and those in his covenant. But there were other, other offerings. There were individual sin offerings that one individual person could offer through a priest. There were also peace offerings, goodwill offerings. This is just out of the overflow of love that a person had for God. They just wanted to show love and worship for God, and they could offer sacrifices, but they couldn't do it alone. They had to relate to God through an intercessor, through another man, a Levitical priest, an Aaronic priest priest. They had to go to this priest. So even when people related to God, they had to go to others. There were limits on the way they could approach God. And in this way, the Old Testament priesthood was by nature intercessory, a man standing between God and us. This is like when a person visits another who is in prison. You ever seen that in the movies? Sure, you can see the person in prison, you can talk with them, but he's on the other side of the glass. And you talk through that that telephone that's attached to the wall, and who's standing in the corner, the guard watching over 
kind of, kind of mediating, making sure that the limits are in place. Under the old covenant, God's people were like those in prison who could never fully relate to and interact with God apart from severe limitations, always present limitations. But now in Jesus, we have been set free from that prison. And we can approach God's throne with confidence, Hebrews tells us. Now we offer God's sacrifices individually. But what kind? What kind of sacrifices can you and I offer? Well, the kind that it says in Romans 12, 1. Well, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We worship God by by offering ourselves. We offer ourselves as a sacrifice, not a blood sacrifice, because Jesus is our blood sacrifice, but we bring ourselves as a free will, peace offering between us and God. And you don't have to go to any other man to do that. Hebrews 13 even says this later in this book we're reading. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's our sacrifices. Doing good and sharing what we have. Honoring God by giving of ourselves to him and to others. Let me summarize that. So now today, all Christians are as priests before God. We are holy. We are set apart by him to offer sacrifices of worship to God. Your pastor can never do that on your behalf. I could never do that for you. The New Testament priesthood that I hold, like you hold, is not intercessory. It's not us standing between man and God. It's our ability to approach God through Jesus. This is why I think it's very misleading at best. At best, it's misleading for Christian leaders today to be referred to as priest. So you see that virtually everything that made the priests of the Old Testament unique has been done away with. The Old Testament Aaronic priesthood has been utterly obsolete now that we have Jesus. Jesus is our only true priest. And there will never be another. He is the only one who qualifies for the new covenant intercessory role of priest. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator or intercessor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Continue on. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save. He's able to save. What is it, though, that makes Jesus able to save those who draw near? His indestructible life. The fact that he lives today, bodily he lives, not a disembodied spirit, but he stands before the Father today. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf in the throne room of God. I was talking with a man at Temple Square one time doing street evangelism. I told him that the New Testament, and Hebrew specifically I was pointing to, tells us that Jesus is our only prophet. He's our only priest. He's our only king. Ultimately, and I asked him, why are you still looking for a prophet? Is Jesus not enough? Why are you looking for a prophet? He said, because Jesus is dead. See that problem? 
The next thing I said to him is, Jesus lives. A dead Jesus cannot intercede, but a living Jesus can. Our Savior lives. He stands on our behalf in the presence of the Father forever. He is able to save to the uttermost. Save to the uttermost. A variety of different words that have been used in English to try to land on that Greek word, uttermost. I think that's an awesome word. The English word is even an awesome word for what's trying to be conveyed here. Here's why. The author could have used a word that just meant forever. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And that would be true, wouldn't it? That'd be very true, both here and everywhere else in the New Testament, that when we're saved, we're saved forever. He's able to save us for eternity. Amen? That is true. But he didn't use the word forever, as he's already used in Hebrews. He knows that language, but he chose a different one. As he's writing this, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's a pause, and this is more than just forever. He also could have chosen to use the word that means complete, or to the fullest extent. So he could have used a word that says he's able to save completely, entirely, those who draw near to God through him. And that would also be true, wouldn't it? He can save completely, to the fullest extent, entirely save us. But he chose, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, as he's writing this, he chose this word that means both. It means both forever and complete. Salvation through Jesus is both absolute and eternal. If you have salvation in Jesus, you are all the way saved. That's what that means. You have salvation in him, all the way saved. Not partly, not halfway there. You are all the way saved. I know you're, many of you are Baptists, but you could say amen to that. All the way saved. This is amazing news. This is good news. You know that's what the gospel means, right? Gospel is evangelion, good news. This is amazing news. When you're saved through Jesus, you're saved all the way to the end. It is not as though you're running a marathon and after a few short miles, you get tired. And just as you're about to drop out, Jesus comes alongside on a motorcycle, says, jump on back, takes you to the very last hundred yards, drops you off and says, nah, you're on your own. That is not saved to the uttermost. That's a partial saving where the rest is on you. If you make it, you'll get there. It is full salvation that we are given. The race is not up to you. It is not up to me now. For the record, this is the only way that Jesus saves. The only way. But you know that Jesus tells us in the New Testament that he's the good shepherd. And he uses this beautiful illustration of what it means to be the good shepherd. And he explains that he has been given sheep by his father. And the sheep that he has been given, he made a promise to his father, I will not lose any of the sheep you've given me, but I will shepherd them into heaven, into the sheepfold. Jesus is not going to get into heaven and say, I lost a few, father, but most are here. Jesus is the perfect shepherd, not like Moses, not like Joshua, who couldn't finish the job because of their own sin and ours. But Jesus shepherds to the end, all the way. He even tells a story about a shepherd who has a a lost sheep, a rebellious sheep, who leaves the flock 
disappears into the, the wilderness and finds himself stuck on the side of a cliff away from the flock. And what does Jesus say? If you guys remember this story, what did Jesus say the good shepherd does when one sheep leaves? He leaves the 99. He goes and finds that sheep. And what does he do? Does he say, please, sheep, it's so much better back in the fold. Please come back. Jesus says that the good shepherd picks up that sheep, puts them on his shoulders, and carries them back. And, and does he carry them partway back? And when they get within sight of the flock, he puts the sheep down and go, okay, now, okay, go. No. He saves to the uttermost. He carries that sheep all the way back into the fold. All of his sheep will make it. He will not lose any. He doesn't stop short. Do you know how many religions teach that the final, decisive part of the journey is all up to you? Do you know how many religions teach that? All of the false ones. All of them. All of them. Every false religion who claims the name of Jesus somewhere tells you that at the end it's on you. He may shepherd you for a while and then say, good, good luck. Every false religion teaches that. But the Bible says that we are saved to the uttermost. False religions teach that Jesus either can't do it or he won't do it. But our Bible tells us that salvation is absolute. Our gospel is one of uttermost saving. It's saving to the maximum extent. If you have a picture in your mind of a partial saving, that's not what the Bible's teaching. Like, like there's a balcony in heaven that you're, you're distant from God. Maybe he'll look up here and see me. It's full, it's complete. In fact, in the Bible, it's so clear there's no such thing as partial salvation. And it's riddled with language that tells us that we are either fully saved or we're not saved at all. That's the options. You're either fully saved or you're not. That's the options. Let me give you a couple of verses here. John chapter 5, verse 24. Listen to what Jesus himself says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes... Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is so critical. Do you know how easily, if we read that and just went about our day and forgot the, the, the nature of each of those words, do you know how easy it would be for us to misinterpret that and say, if you believe you can have eternal life? That's true. You could say that. If you are a believer, you're going to get it. Jesus puts rock-solid language. If you believe, you have eternal life. You have it. It's yours right now. John 6, 47 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Belief, eternal life. John 6, 54, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see how certain that language is? This fits so perfectly with what the whole New Testament tells us. Romans 
8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can level a charge against God's elect? If you believe in Jesus, eternal life is yours. True salvation is not tenuous. It's not potential. It's not fragile or vulnerable, doubtful. It is certain. Of course, we haven't acquired it yet, but it is ours. And the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, tells us that we will acquire possession of what is already certainly ours. I want you to listen very carefully because this is, this is critical kind of turning point in the thinking. Listen very carefully because what I've been saying is this glorious, beautiful, wonderful, amazing news of a certain, eternal, absolute salvation. But I want you to listen carefully to this because this is This would change everything if you didn't think rightly about this. Not everyone gets this uttermost saving. It is not universal. And it says it right here. As this good news is flowing from the pen of the author, right here it explains who gets this uttermost saving. It's those who draw near to God through him. He is able to save to the uttermost. Who? Those who draw near to God through him. That's who. So to put it the other way, those who don't draw near to God do not get to be saved to the uttermost. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, zero, can come to the Father except through me. Nobody except through me. Only through Jesus Can we draw near to God? You reject Jesus, you cannot be saved to the uttermost. You can't get to God except through him. And no one else can save, not even a little bit. Not even a partial, a partial salvation, if you could imagine it, could come through anyone else. He alone can save, and he saves to the uttermost. That's how he does it. One more thing to note, though. You see there's a comma there and not a period. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, comma, comma. Why? Because what happens in the rest of this sentence, even in the Greek, is continuing on the thought. It's going to establish the basis for why this is possible, how that can even happen. Look at that again. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We may fall into all kinds of wrong assumptions about salvation if we don't read all the words since. The second half of the sentence is critical, isn't it? So let's highlight the word since. I'm going to ask it in a question. If you're thinking, Rich, uh, what are you trying to get to? Let me ask it in a question to make it clearer for you. The since is there for a reason. So let me ask you in a question format. How is it that we can draw near to God? How is it that we can receive this kind of complete, uttermost salvation? How is it even possible? Because, or since, because he always lives to make intercession for them. That's how. That's why. Jesus lives forever. And what's he doing forever? He's making intercession for us, those who draw near to God. If you're drawing near to God, he is there on your behalf. This eternal interceding, 
is the basis for our peace with God. This is why you can have peace. This is why today you can wake up and know you haven't been smote, smited from the earth. God's common grace, and even more so, that Jesus himself intercedes. That's how we can have peace with God. And this implies something massive. You might have sniffed it out. Something massive is being implied here. You see, what, you see why I couldn't preach through more verses than this today? This is so much packed right here. Let me tell you the massive implication here, if you haven't quite put your fingers around it yet. We've been talking about salvation. We've been talking about saving. But what exactly do we need to be saved from? There are so many mixed views on this. Some people think that what we need to be saved from are the temporary effects of sin in this world. So that's disease. That's pain. That's famine. That's suffering of any kind. That's even death. I said recently here that when things go crazy, people cry out to their gods. That's just our nature. We cry out to those that we think have the greatest control, the ultimate in our life. I've said that as you look around today, especially in this really weird time, you look around today, people are crying out to be saved from COVID-19, aren't they? Some are are crying out to be saved from the economic hardships that are going to come or have already come as a result of COVID-19. Some are crying out right now to be saved from overreaching governments and restrictions. And there's a variety of things right now, right? That are highlighted in this particular season. And people are saying, that's what we need to be saved from. That's the problem. That's it. It's not even close to our biggest problem. Not even close. Some people take it a step further. They, they transcend the material things. Okay, so, all right. Hardships and suffering here are bad, but that's not the ultimate. There's something else. There's something greater than that. Maybe it's, maybe it's the devil. Maybe it's demons. Maybe it's the spiritual realm of wickedness, the, the heavenly realms, the powers and principalities. Yeah, we do read about that. It's very serious to us. Maybe it's, the, it's Satan and all of his wily works and effects. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, the devil is virtually powerless. Don't you remember what Jesus says? teaching his people about the casting out of demons and the, and the destruction of, a, of, of the, the casting out of the ruler of this world. And what later his apostles will write about this and say, that you want to get rid of Satan, resist him. And what's he going to do? He's going to tuck tail and flee from you. That's a powerful statement. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, okay? This doesn't in a moment take apart the fact that the devil is real, that he is vicious. We must watch out for what he is seeking to do. But he is not even close to our biggest problem. The real enemy of our flesh, listen to this, the real enemy of our flesh is God. I'm going to say it a little more accurately by flipping that for a second. We all, because of our sin, have become enemies of God. That's the word the New Testament ascribes to us. In our fleshly state, our natural state, just by being born and being sinners, we have made ourselves enemies of God. There's no conscientious objectors. We're not the ones in the middle or the battles raging on of the, the good side, bad side. We're stuck in the middle trying to figure out what to do. We're on the enemy's side, according to the Bible, in our flesh. Our biggest problem is that we are under God's wrath. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's all mankind who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
No one gets away from this. What we really need to be saved from is the wrath of God. You see that? Jesus stands there in the presence of God the Father, interceding on our behalf. If Jesus were to step aside from that intercessory role, what would happen? We would get hit square in the face of the white-hot fury of God's just anger. Now, that's important to acknowledge, but I want to make something very clear to you. Don't think that this makes God unloving. Don't think that that's all there is to the Father. It doesn't say that in our Bible. Remember, it is the Father who sent the Son out of his great love for the world. For God, that's saying the Father, the Father loved the world that he sent his only Son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, it's the love of God that has provided his Son to be the intercessor between us and him. It is his great kindness it is his goodness we should see as we, as we look to this. But it is Jesus who stands between us and God. He's our only mediator. He's our only intercessor. You and I, in our natural state, are under the wrath of God for our sin. And Jesus atones for that in his death. And he's there making intercession for us. It's what he has been doing since he ascended to heaven. The first chapter of the book of Acts, the end of the, the, the gospel accounts. And he is there now and forever. All right, Christians, this means that even now, when you sin before God, when you, you, when you are deserving of wrath, when you are reminded by your deserving of wrath status before him, because of your sin still today, even after being saved, Jesus is there interceding on our behalf. He paid for those sins once and for all on the cross. And now he stands there holding that, locking it in place for all of those who believe. He intercedes for us forever. John Piper writes this about the same verse. He says, this means our salvation is as secure as Christ's priesthood is indestructible. How long will Jesus stand as intercessor? As long as he's alive. Praise the Lord for an indestructible life for our great high priest. In light of all this, in light of Jesus' role standing there before the Father, we can drop the guilt and the shame for our sin. You're forgiven. If you are in Christ, he's standing there interceding on your behalf. You know, one of the things that the enemy tries to use to hamstring Christians, remember I said earlier that he, he genuinely is powerless when we acknowledge what is true. But when we forget what is true, that's when the lie can come. And that's when we can fall to the wiles of Satan. When we start to believe some lies about our sin, our guilt, and our shame. And oftentimes the enemy lies to us by starting with truths. Is that not how the devil works? From the very beginning, he begins by saying partial truths. Well, what's the partial truth we need to watch out for? Here's the partial truth. Your sin is wicked, and it's disgusting, and it is worthy of judgment. And that sin is worthy of God's just wrath. All of that is true. Even your sins right now as a Christian. All of your sins are disgusting and corrupted before God. My sins are hated by God. But the twist that the enemy then takes is to say, because of that now, 
you are now under his wrath. Because of that now, you must do something else to work out of that problem. You now have to rely on yourself. You need to carry that guilt and shame. You need to be incapacitated from whatever God has called you to do as a believer, a priesthood of all believers, or uniquely in the gifts that God has given you in this life. So many Christians get so hamstrung by this, but he has no power over you anymore because Jesus is there today. He's there right now interceding on our behalf. Your past sins do not need to rule your life anymore. Your present sins ought not rule your life anymore. You need to stop living as though you are a slave to an old sin. You don't have to live in that way anymore. Like the slave that was freed in the marketplace as a a freeman, And he sees his old master, and he he runs up and bows. How can I serve you? No! That old old master sin that pays you the wage, death, is not in charge of you anymore. You have a new and a better master. And his name is Jesus. I hope that we can be encouraged by these passages. One of the reasons that, that I love slowly walking through places like this is because the book of Hebrews has unfortunately gotten a bit of a stigma for Christians that it's the one book in the New Testament that really seems to challenge eternal security, challenge the doctrine of perseverance the same. If you're looking for comfort, that, that salvation has been secured for you in a certain... Well, don't go to Hebrews. That, that doesn't give you that comfort. Stay away from 1 John too. No. These books, the ones that challenge us the most to stay focused, are the ones that give us these amazing, beautiful confidences that we have been saved to the uttermost by Jesus, who is right now standing before the Father making intercession for us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I know that the people may hear this today, uh, a live stream at home, maybe somebody will come in here today, maybe someone will hear this as we put it on uh, the radio in the future. And Lord, I know that people might be carrying all kinds of burdens of past sin. And Father, for the Christian who's hearing this, the person who has put all their faith and their trust in Jesus, I pray that they would be, they would be so greatly encouraged that Jesus has saved to the uttermost, eternally, absolutely. And that any lie from the enemy that seeks to incapacitate us ought to be thrown away. Father, I pray that we'd be encouraged to do what you've commanded for us to do. Help us to win the war in our lives right now in our flesh against sin. A war that will be gone and finished after we die and no longer have to fight against our flesh. But Lord, I also pray for those who who might not yet have put their faith in you, their trust in you, who are wondering how in the world they can have this saved to the uttermost. Father, I pray that you would do a mighty work and that today, this very day, they would repent of sins, that they would see the folly in not only their sin, but all of their attempts to be righteous apart from Jesus. That they would cry out to the one and true only Savior, the only priesthood holder, that they would go to him and acknowledge his once and for all sacrifice of his own blood poured out for sins, that they may forever have the peace of his interceding power between your wrath and our sin. God, I pray that this would be true, that people would take this so seriously that we wouldn't let the day pass on without thinking about it, without holding, holding it tightly to our hearts and testing ourselves against it. Father, this very day, I pray that you would do a great work in the hearts of both believers and those who are not yet. 
that we would acknowledge these verses, be served by them, that we would use them exactly what they are for. We may be drawn closer to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.